Hey, I'm Sam. And I'm Lizzie. And we're queer people who love movies. This is Subtextual. Hi, Lizzie. Hello, Samuel. We have a very special episode today. It's a very special day here in the studio. It's the birthday of our beloved producer, Lee. And Lee has chosen not even a film, not even a show for the first time in Subtextual history, a play. We love the musical theater. (laughs) (laughs) We are theater kids at heart, so we're super excited to get into this episode. But before we do, we want to give a shout out to our patrons. Yes, thank you so much to the people at our Patreon who have paid to support us. If you would like to join our Patreon, um, you can find us at patreon.com slash subtextualpod. If that's not your bag, that's totally cool. Just listen on and wish Lee a happy birthday. Happy birthday to to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to Lee. Happy birthday to you. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much. And nothing says happy birthday like (laughs) angels in America. (laughs) Absolutely nothing. So, Lee, you've been wanting to do this for a while, and... This has got to be probably the heftiest content we've ever covered. So Angels in America started as a play, right? Yes, it's a play that was then adapted to an HBO miniseries, which I think we're going to talk about some today, as well as obviously very many uh, theatrical productions. We're going to also focus on the uh, Royal Theatre Company production. I think that's a London National Theatre Company uh, production that you can also watch at home on National Theater at Home. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we're going to be diving all around. What was y'all's sort of like introduction to it? I guess just me or? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm <laughs> so you, Had you ever just heard? Just you, Lee. Had you ever just... heard? I had never, I mean, I'd known it existed, but no one had ever recommended it to me. And I take your recommendations very seriously. So I don't know what I expected. I thought Angels in America was going to be like, oh, you know, rents, you know, everybody's an angel. <laughs> they're in New York, whatever. But then I saw the fucking angel and I was like, holy shit. Literal angels actually in America <laughs> on American soil. Yeah. Actual angels. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, as I mentioned, there's that HBO miniseries. There's the Andrew Garfield in the National Theater at Home like, so theater production. So that's kind of how I... That's, well, you, you told us that, about right? it like mm-hmm. early in the podcast. You were like, hey, at some point, like, I think it'd be cool to do this. And we were like, yeah, oh, it's a big, thick text. Like, we'll have to give it a full do. And then on TikTok, I was served like this super cut of Andrew Garfield's performance, <laughs> like different <laughs> clips from different scenes in the National Theater 2018 production. And I was like, Lee, what is Angels in America about again? Like this looks, it, I mean, it was a, basically a super cut of his stuff over like crying. Like yeah. mm-hmm. the sound yeah. on TikTok was just someone <laughs> crying. And I was like, wow, this seems great. How do I watch it right now? I was just going to say that is one thing about the theatrical version. So I watched, uh, I didn't get to watch all of it, but I watched all of the first part. This is a two-part text. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, a a striking difference between the play and the HBO series is that there is a lot of like screaming. I mean, there's that, but it's like, you know, (laughs) you're you're in theater. You're like really giving it. So you can really bring it with the volume of your voice, I guess. Yeah, I mean- Lizzie's talking about a rich text, you know, so to speak. And Lee has three books in front of him. So we've got, this is part one, Millennium Approaches. It's a play in two parts. I guess we're going to talk all about it. We'll we'll try to. There's so much. There's part two, Perestroika. And then I found uh, a book at the local library 
which is sort of an oral history. Mm. The world only spins forward, which is a quote from, I think it's in Perestroika, second part. Yeah, it's a it's a big work. How did um, you come to Angels in America? If I'm being honest, I probably didn't read Angels in America until like at earliest college, probably post-college. These, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, these are like used books that I bought either from the university bookstore or the library uh, in town. And that's when I would have first read Angels in America. But it goes way back because uh, I was born and raised in Lake Charles, Louisiana. Represent. Represent, which also Tony Kushner, the playwright, uh, is from Lake Charles, Louisiana. And uh, That's a hell of a connection because you don't even meet that many people in Louisiana from Lake Charles. I've thought about it because I'm from there. It's like what – that's to me like the most claim to fame, I think. But I don't even know that he's necessarily celebrated in Lake Charles. Um, There's also Gold Band Records, which Dolly Parton recorded her first album. Uh, it doesn't exist anymore. Um, and then there's like a Dr. DeBakey who I think invented open heart surgery. Anyway, when I was a little boy, I was raised Jewish. So go to synagogue, Temple Sinai. And Tony Kushner's father is, I believe, William Kushner. He was always like this mysterious older guy in the back of the in the back of synagogue, big hair, like kind of big nose. And like very quiet. And I would always ask my parents, like, who is that guy? He's like all alone back there. Uh, He was also the conductor because he's like a clarinetist. He Hmm. was the conductor for the Lake Charles Symphony Orchestra. Oh, the mystery grows with this guy. And um, there's just like a lot connected to that. And then also in my, at Temple Sinai and Lake Charles, there were like a couple paintings that I always look at as a kid. Mm-hmm. And it was like a painting of like some theater masks. And there was one that was like maybe a cornucopia or something like that. And I was like, would point as a kid and ask my parents. And it's like, oh, that's Tony Kushner. He's a playwright. Like he painted He did those. paintings too? I guess. They're not like amazing paintings, but. <laughs> <laughs> it's but, like uh, a stick figure. Yeah, I'm thinking like George Bush level, yeah. maybe. Probably better than that. Yeah, that's probably my first uh, introduction to the name Tony Kushner. But also on top of that, which is the biggest impact, I think, there were like two big like movie posters in our temple. Huh. For whatever reason, Driving Miss Daisy was one of them. <laughs> okay. And Angels in America was the other. No and so, like, kidding. I always would see this. Um, Wait, that's pretty incredible because it's like, I actually don't know what Judaism thinks about homosexuality, but I kind of assumed it was like a no, not good. Yeah. I mean, I I would assume the same. I always feel like, uh, but it could just be my bias growing up, but I feel like compared to my Christian friends, it was like maybe more lax or like, Hmm. well, here's the thing too. When you grow up as a Jew in the South, it's like reformed Judaism because we eat shellfish we eat like all oh. sorts of stuff in louisiana so we're not really like we're not kosher but we're still jews you know or it's like reformed judaism oh, i've never heard of that that's interesting so maybe there are some it's like a more liberal approach right I yeah guess. some I, more allowable things i assumed it would be a little more lax i don't know very much but i do know that women can be rabbis whereas yeah. like in catholicism women can't be fathers 
Right, but you, I've never seen a female priest or right. pastor. pastor or I mean, not saying that they aren't out there, but in my experience, I haven't seen them because the irony about Christianity in the South versus Reformed <laughs> Judaism in the South is that in the South, it's way more strict and way more conservative. Mm. Yeah. But whereas like, you know, maybe Presbyterian or WASP type communities up in the New England, I'm thinking specifically, can be a little more liberal and intellectual, at least in you know, idea if not practice, but down south it's like, we don't like anybody who doesn't do what we do. <laughs> that uh, woman's menstruating. You better get her out of the church of the house of God. <laughs> exactly. Oh, so that's an interesting perspective. Yeah, I feel like I feel like uh, at least our temple had a positive approach. Obviously, they had the poster for Angels in America, and I remember also like. We would do like, we would have Sunday school, but you know, it was not, you know, it was like Jewish Sunday school. And I remember we would do like these different like community, um, like, what do you call that? When you like help, help like out in the outreach? community outreach, yeah. like, you know, we'd go to like soup kitchens and stuff. And one time we went to like a health clinic and the person who brought us there was telling us about AIDS and no stuff way. and was like explaining like, this is a thing. And like, People are afraid to like sit down in movie theaters because they think like a needle's going to prick them. I remember that. And she, and the lady was like, that's like, you should be careful with needles, but like, it's not something you should be afraid of. Like you shouldn't demonize. Maybe that's probably what she was trying to get at. But, I'm floored because yeah. my education on age <laughs> was 100% self-motivated as a Christian raised person in the South. My health teacher in the seventh grade held a demonstration where she got like a kid, a, a girl and a boy. She had them stand in front of the class and then she had them like rub arms. Like one girl, she would put her hand on the boy and the boy would put his hand on the girl's arm and they would rub each other's arms. And she was like, that constitutes sex and you could transmit AIDS. <laughs> what? Yeah. Dude, the South, you never, you never know what you're getting from Lake Charles to Texas. You're like, oh, it's a spectrum. There might as well be education. different countries at this point. Like the, just the range of which people are like spreading misinformation about AIDS is insane. That's crazy. So that was like, that's, I just have like, since as an early boy, I've seen this, I've seen this image. I've always been curious about it. And then like, as I was, you know, graduating high school and deciding what I would major in, like the arts and like film and uh, theater was interesting to me. So I don't know, you know, that's from like Charles, Tony Kushner. I, I've always felt really connected to this. And eventually I read it and was pretty floored. I think, and I maybe I've talked to you guys about this already, but I think part of what makes it so powerful is how big it is. And it's, you know, just reading a play, it's not that long, but if you were to watch it, I think it's like six hours or seven hours, seven hours in the theater. Right. And I think sometimes they've even done it, I was reading uh, in this oral history, uh, at least with the National Theater production in 2017 or 2018, they would do both part one and part two on the same day. Same sometimes day. they would do it, not all the time, but they were like, the cast members would always say like, it was like dying or something, you know, it's like, I knew there would be good parts and bad parts, but not, it could not all be good or all bad, you know? Right. Like the, <laughs> the odds of you doing everything right in an eight hour period are... Very slim. Yeah, yeah I watched um, the National Theater has a featurette about a day where they put on both shows, both parts of the show in a single day and what they have to do to prepare. And it's basically just like a marathon. 
and you have to like eat when you can eat, drink lots of water when you can, like pee when you have the opportunity. And basically they talked about it as if like something inevitably goes wrong. Like a good Mm -hmm. day where nothing goes wrong is super rare. If I could, as a person who saw the first half and not the second half, Mm -hmm. do either of you feel like you could like summarize the play in its entirety? I mean, not beat for beat, but- Uh, Well, I'll give it a shot. So largely to me, it's about the characters in the play um, oh my God, <laughs> we should talk about how fucking crazy this play is. So, <laughs> so the, the, at least in Millennium approaches, the top of the bill is uh, character Roy M. Cohn, based on the actual uh, Roy Cohn, a successful New York lawyer and unofficial power broker, um, just perhaps the most evil man in the world who had illegal conferences with Judge Kaufman during the trial of Ethel Rosenberg. Um, this is all true it's to be found in the historical record. And he also died from AIDS complications. He died IRL. from AIDS. Yeah. So that, that is a big, um, I would love to talk a little bit more about Roy. Um, but I want to just quickly go through some of the, like what this story is about. So we've got this, uh, intense character of Roy. Uh, there are Mormons as well, a Mormon couple, uh, and the husband is, um, uh, finding out about his sexuality and coming out. And there's a young couple, uh, one of which prior, we find out in like the, one of the first scenes has AIDS and Lewis is grippling with trying to leave prior. It deals with Roy Cohn dying of AIDS with this Mormon who is a uh, close counsel to Roy Cohn, figuring out about his sexuality and falling in love with Pryor's ex-lover, Lewis. And where the angels come in. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And don't forget <laughs> the angels. angels. <laughs> I really uh, thought that was just a thematic so sort of no, my, Oh, yeah. Dude, the fucking reveal of the angel in part one literally put my mouth on the floor. I was like, what the <laughs> fuck am I watching? Yeah. So I guess did you, did you guys... Ex- so the angel doesn't come until like the end of part one. Did you guys think there would actually be angels? Or no. I thought he was delirious because throughout... Um, he has like visions or something. Prior Walter is like, you know, and people who are battling with complications of AIDS often get to this place like in between like living and death where they're hanging on and they're susceptible to a lot of different things based on the drugs that they're being administered where they can like see hallucinations and you know see people who aren't there hear people who aren't there and so I just thought it was something in his inner psyche that he was dealing with and then the fucking angel comes out at the end of act one and um me and Lizzie were just like, oh, oh my God. <laughs> no, and um, what's interesting is that, so I didn't get to watch the whole HBO series, but I did want to watch the angel reveal because in the National Theater production, at least, the angel is very like gangly and grungy and seems to have no gender, no sex, no, like they mentioned in the play, uh, the angel has like multiple vaginas and multiple penises <laughs> oh my God. and yeah. is this like crazy cre- sex creature. But in the HBO series, when I watched that episode, it's just like Emma Thompson in a white gown and like flowing hair, like very what? OG, what you would normally picture, quote unquote, an angel, like a biblical angel. Oh. So the interpretation scope of the play and I guess that's the beauty of theater is that the interpretation scope is so much wider than I think a cinematic script can be. Like, it was mm-hmm. so interesting to see the differences in the worlds that they chose. I think Tony Kushner had a 
had a lot of uh, say in that production and almost oh. like he was very protective of the work. I, I did have some pretty interesting, I'm going to try to find this quote real fast, um, about the angel in the uh, National Theater production. Yeah, Lizzie, to your point, you know, you're talking about translating a text to screen and usually it's from a book where mm-hmm. there is great like character description. But with a play, it's kind of like angel says this and you can, you know, make the angel anything you want. I love the national theater versions of the of the angel because I feel like a person viewing a creature that they can't comprehend is kind of more in line with like an angel sent from God rather than like Emma Thompson in a white gown kind of just seems like a ghost. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, there is an angel in this play and Pryor uh, hallucinates her at first maybe and then is visited for real by a real angel and it, and it, and it comes back a lot in part two. Uh, but the quote I was looking for is from Marianne Elliott, who was the director of uh, the the play in London in 2017. She said, I spoke to Tony early on and he said he was quite surprised how many productions dress the angel in white feathers and a flowing Roman robe. I went away and thought, great, great. If she doesn't have to be that, what can she be? And yeah, she's like, you described like gangly, almost like ashen, like very like dirty and um, like dark. And like the play historically involves like um, some some interesting effects, but I think Tony Kushner wrote a note in um, like the playwright's note. It's like the special effects should be realistic, but like they should be powerful, but you can see the wire. It's okay. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. like, you know, the idea is that the angel would come in like on a wire. Um, but in the National Theater production, it's like, a bunch of, uh, I guess, actors, you would call them, in, like, dark suits, kind of, like, working. Puppeteering. Like, skeletal puppeteering. Yeah, Actually, I found like the this, Lion King. Exactly. I found this really cool featurette on how they did it in the National Theater, if y'all want to watch a clip of it. I would love it. to watch I that. would love nothing more. I've been up at night trying to figure this shit out. What you're looking at when you're looking at the flying is a six- or seven-person mechanical duet. The moment where the flying comes happens at the end of a big fight sequence. I fly the angel in the middle, and I also have another person that is on the end of my line and gives me sort of an extra assist. It's all about the feel of the person. It's about your relationship between yourself and the actor. The angel gets lifted, and there's an added weight of one of the other actors that gets pulled up by the angel. That's insane. Maybe, Sam, if you want to, like... Describe the mechanism? Yeah, I could describe that clip that Lizzie just showed us, which is like scratching a certain part of my brain as a theater kid. But (laughs) it shows the amount of team members that it takes to operate this angel who, unlike Emma Thompson in a white gown, (laughs) is massive and is flying through the air with some great like aerial work by these stage performers. So they kind of act as counterweights to the actor who is playing the angel. When she goes down, they go up and then vice versa. Mm -hmm. But in the scenes where they're fighting, they kind of have to feel the movement and try to create like a fluid balance between themselves. And God, sometimes I just remember that I was a theater kid. (laughs) Sometimes I kick myself and I'm like, why did I not pursue theater more heavily? Because it... At the professional level, it's so intricate and interesting. And it's the angel isn't just one person. It's eight people working together, including mm-hmm. Andrew Garfield, who at one point, he plays par- Prior Walter in the stage version that um, mm-hmm. I watched in the National Theater. 
the angel is lifting up him and then the seven people are like descending to try to counterbalance both their weights and he's fighting and jumping and they're like attaching and unattaching it's just it's crazy i'm gonna link this featurette in the notes because this moment to me i don't know i've never read the play so i don't know how i would have pictured it but to me this feels like the most imaginative yeah, I do want to talk about that, how it's a little different in the play and how it's kind of brilliant how they pulled it off there. But I also just wanted to say that Andrew Garfield in this book talks in some interviews um, about how it was really challenging rehearsing with uh, the puppetry. And eventually what they decided to do was like they would rehearse with just the angel, the actress who plays the angel and uh, Pryor and, you know, Andrew Garfield. And then from that, they would take like the motivations that the angel found and translate that to the team of the pup. So the puppetry is like part of her mm. and like the the way that she moves her wings, which is controlled by the puppeteers, like is influenced by what she's like thinking in the scene. And so oh. they distilled the motivations that she found in the scene with Andrew Garfield. And then they built on that with like the tech, the puppetry. I mean, we talk about auteurs in the film sense, you know, but translating this to the stage in this specific production, it seemed like they took so many liberties that were humongous risks. And I think they entirely paid off. And also like physical risks, because both Andrew Garfield and the actress who are performing this stunt, and for that matter, all of the stage performers who are moving the wings of the angel and counterbalancing their weights are all, like, ripped. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I've heard from various, you know, anytime a person has flown in cinema, like Peter Pan or the witches on top of the broomsticks and Hocus Pocus, that being in the harnesses is very tricky and straining and hard to do. So... To do like these minute long scenes with this much physical exertion where you're also exerting the emotion, mm -hmm. I'm like, maybe theater actors are some of the hardest <laughs> working people in the world. Core strength, man. Core strength and emotional strength for an eight hour production. Yeah, that that's still crazy to me. The like I never I never knew that they would do both plays in the same day. And I guess they probably have in the past, but I always thought it was like it is a traditionally a two-night thing. But to talk about the um, the angel in the play version versus, uh, or in the National Theater version versus the text, I want to quickly read just a couple quotes here. So just to kind of uh, textually describe what you see in the National Theater production, Pryor is like standing on his bed, the lights change around him, like everything's going crazy. Uh, everyone's eyes are on him and they're also going up to the flies. We know what's going to happen. They're going to fly in a woman with wings and we're looking and it's all building to a point of climax. At that point of climax, there's is a sense of a drop and a full blackout, which is very disorienting. The lights come up. Everyone's eyes are up looking for what object is coming in through the broken roof. In the play, the angel breaks through the roof uh, as she does in the HBO miniseries. Andrew's looking up there. And there's nothing there. As his eye line comes down, there, strewn on the floor among the rubble, is this thing. It's a sort of creature mess in browns and blacks. And then it rises from the floor. It's clearly been dropped from a great height and coalesces into one body. And then Kushner says, uh, I guess she's, uh, he's referring to the director. When she first told me about it, I loved the kind of shock. It had always been very important to me that the angel breaks the ceiling 
But then I assumed that she would put the brakes on and that she would stop midair. Marianne, the director, is the first person who has actually had her smash into the floor and then have to kind of reemerge. I thought that was beautiful and broken and scary. Well, that totally ties into the backstory in the world that this angel is descending from because later in the second part of the play, he ascends a ladder to heaven, which sounds really, you know, in the Old Testament Bible version <laughs> sounds like, oh, he descended to heaven, must have been great up there. <laughs> but in this play version, at least, it's like an apocalyptic landscape of like other grungy angelic figures. And they're also going through their own trials and tribulations in heaven. Like in this world of Kushner's design, heaven is also a fucked up place. So the idea of this angel being weak and falling and crashing, but still being like mighty and terrifying totally resonated with me. Like the wings don't look feathery and clean. They look like skeletal and like they've seen some shit and she's dragging like lint around, you know? <laughs> yeah. She's a dirty angel. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, to Lizzie's point, when people in the biblical sense think, oh, you go to heaven, it's just like a nice cheery place. But if you are entering into a dimension where humans aren't meant to be able to perceive or live properly, it's reminding me very much of Nope, where they're seeing this yeah. alien that people can't like actually fathom with their own eyes. So it might be beautiful. It might be just like any other animal, but the human body isn't meant to perceive it. It's like terrifying. It should be jolting. Yeah, absolutely. And and for that matter, when I watched the HBO episode, the third episode of season one, where they covered this moment, that actor is like trying to hide under the covers, trying to run away, <laughs> trying to like command the angel away. And it just feels so real. And what tricks me as an audience member into no longer doubting that this is in Pryor's mind and being like, he is being visited by a motherfucking physical angel. It is crashed through the ceiling of his apartment and is giving him an orgasm and a prophecy. <laughs> yeah, I always thought, I've, I'm, I haven't fully understood, like, it's so sexual to the alien, uh, the angels. I don't know. There's a whole, there's a lot about it in uh, in Perestroika, I think. Uh, oh, so it's explicitly sexual in the play written as like, well. So I did. I did watch enough of uh, the National Theater to see the the part in the play where uh, Pryor is explaining to his friend Belize about like he's explaining like this all happened like I could either I'm hallucinating or I'm a prophet. Um, <laughs> but everything that happens in the National Theater it happens in the play as well. So it's like talking about the how the angels have like multiple sex organs and like because Pryor in the first part talks about like. Um, having like the, the, he has like a wet dream. It's like the first orgasm he's had in months. Cause he's just been in bed, like sick and dying. So like, maybe he's just like extra horny and <laughs> horniness is just a very gay thing. Maybe I don't like, is that, <laughs> am I saying something wrong or I don't know. I mean, human sex drive is kind of insane. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if you've just been bedridden forever to just get so fucking horny. Well, I love the idea that the angel is tied to just like pure sex and pure orgasm and it's also kind of how the angel gets like the best of him in their first encounter in the apartment mm. is I didn't even think about she that. She kind of wow. like neutralizes him with an <laughs> orgasm and then is able <laughs> to be so like true. all right now you have your your prophecy journey, you know. Because later he he does wrestle with the angel in Perestroika. That's how he goes up to oh. heaven. So that's I didn't even think about that. Like she's controlling him through his sexuality, I guess or his and the, the biblical sense, like pleasure is, you know, the original sin, right? 
So it's something that's like guarded for those who are married in like the sanctity of Christ. Right. So, you know, if these angels are fucking horny as shit, they could probably like <laughs> neutralize anyone on earth. Just, exactly. Just with that power alone. Exactly. No, I do like that element of it. And it also is so surprising and shocking for an audience and especially an American audience because Americans are so frigid. I'll admit like, you know, if you can talk about sex, like they'll giggle, but then they'll listen, you know? Mm -hmm. So this I felt was a really clever way on Tony Kushner's part to like gain hyper focus on um, the subject matter at hand and also to give the angel like more power and more street cred because like a woman in flowing white garb is not very powerful. She may be like all inspiring, but ultimately she's pure and like what's, you know, powerful about purity, but an mm. angel that can make you come by just being in the room. <laughs> that's a certain kind of power that I think uh, he's hinting at here. I'm just rebooting my AO3 right now. <laughs> that's open this fanfic. <laughs> Oh, my God. Uh, so we talked to, I mean, we can continue talking about the angel, but maybe let's shift to um, Roy Cohn. I was today years old when I found out that Roy Cohn is a real person. So I didn't know that either. I, the reason I know who Roy Cohn is is because of this play. Um, and then I've heard about the Ethel, uh, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, I believe. That, can we give a little background on that? So, like, I'm not, like, totally, I'm not the best scholar on this, but I think they were... Um, like spies for Russia during the Cold War era. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> like seeing you nod your head. Um, and they were tried and um, Ethel was going to get a life sentence. And um, Roy Cohn is, according to this play and historical record, um, the reason why Ethel Rosenberg got the death sentence. So she Shit. was killed. Um, and Ethel Rosenberg plays a part in this play. She's a... Uh, is she in? Did you see her at all in the first part? Yeah. Okay. She's in the first part very briefly when Roy Cohn like becomes almost debilitated by. He's HIV. like he's. She calls nine one one. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So she's in the second half a lot, like pretty much most of the scenes, because Roy's in the hospital for the second half. She haunts his ass mm -hmm. as she should. Mm -hmm. There's such one of my favorite scenes is the scene between. So when like Roy dies at at the end. Okay, wait. Oh, that okay, scene is iconic. It. We can we can talk uh, more about that scene. I want to I want to first uh, establish Roy Cohn as a character in this play. Also, I quickly just want to mention in in the HBO miniseries, uh, Roy Cohn is played by Al Pacino. So good. In the London uh, National Theatre play, Royal National Theatre, it's Nathan Lane. So which is so good. Also really good. And I realized I found out from this book that Tony Kushner like really wanted Nathan Lane, and he really wanted Andrew Garfield. No way. Probably some of the other actors too, but he like wrote them emails, and Nathan uh. Lane agreed because. Tony Kushner was, wrote a very persuasive email, he said. Um, and I thought that, thought that was very interesting because Nathan Lane and Al Pacino are very different actors. Exactly. But there's definitely a certain energy to the HBO series. I, I think I told you it's like, feels to me much more serious and almost to a fault. Like it gets a little corny sometimes. Yeah, it has that 90s cheese on it that mm -hmm. is still really enjoyable. Yeah, it's really powerful. Like it's because it, this is a very serious, like ambitious text. So I think it, for me, like the HBO miniseries is the one that like, well, I just always picture in my head. So when I see the characters or when I read the mm -hmm. characters, I picture that. So the way I prepared for this episode is I would I read the plays first. Mm -hmm. And then I watched like a couple episodes of the HBO miniseries. It's 
three episodes per part, so six episodes in total. I would watch a couple episodes and then I would watch the National Theater and like go back oh. and forth. And it was really cool because like I could see that what was cut from the HBO miniseries, which isn't a lot, but there's some things cut. And then I feel like the National Theater performance is straight, everything in the text. They probably cut a couple things, but um, it's very true to the text. And just seeing like, you know, when you're in a when you're in a theater and there's actors on stage, like they really are playing. There's a lot of jokes in this, even though it's a serious play yes. about AIDS. They play <laughs> you know? up the jokes, I feel, in the theater version. And it works. Yeah. And I think that's kind of like why they're there, you know, why they're mm -hmm. written there is for people to like react and laugh to it. It is a very funny play. Um, but I did want to talk about Roy Cohn and I found a really interesting uh, uh, clip in this book. Uh, talking maybe about how the idea of Roy Cohn entered into um, entered into Angels in America. Yeah, I was curious because there's only two characters that exist in reality, and it's Roy Cohn and his victim Ethel. 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 Ethel and I was like, why? Why those two people? I am curious if you know, like, why he wanted her to die, like, why he pushed for her death. He hated commies, according to the play. Which is not, you know, this is all in historical record, but like the motives and stuff. I don't know. Like according to the play, he just really fucking hated commies. He was, Roy Cohn was like closely um, working with McCarthy. Is that right? Mm -hmm. McCarthy and the, right, Red, the Scare Red Scare era. Yeah, McCarthyism. And also uh, J. Edgar Hoover. Is that the FBI? Yeah, exactly. Who was We're also talking, gay. Who was gay. We need a. Yes. I mean, this, I mean, <laughs> it's raising these flags of like hypocrisy, if not hypocrisy, then absolute irony that, you know, this gay man who is so offended to be even accused of having AIDS when he's getting them from lesions like in his ass. This mm -hmm. is important to note. Uh, yeah, he, um, oh man, that, that scene is also very good. But uh, in, in real life, Roy Cohn, uh, like to his deathbed, never admitted that he had AIDS. He called it liver cancer. And that's what is uh, in the play. Crazy. But there's an amazing scene in the play where uh, he's sitting with his doctor and like, Basically, the doctor tells him he has AIDS and he's like, what did you say? Like, I have liver cancer. And do you remember this? Scene yes, or? exactly. Yes. I told it to, I was reading this play while I was on set with, I was rereading it while I was on set with our friend Will. Mm -hmm. And I had just read that scene. And I was like, I had to talk to someone about it. And so I was talking <laughs> to Will. I was like, this is so good. And I explained Roy Cohn. And it's like, the line that really got me was, um, he, he's yelling at this doctor um, saying like, I have liver cancer. It's not AIDS. He says, he says something to the effect of like, I am not. Uh, I'm not a homosexual. I'm a man who has sex with other men or something mm -hmm. like that. Right, yeah, yeah because a homosexual is someone who... Has zero without clout. clout. Zero clout. Yeah. Mm -hmm. he's, so interesting. He's like not afraid to admit. And he's... Because he also says... Oh, it's a great line where he's like, I'm the guy who goes to the White House with my like boyfriend and yeah. the president shakes his hand. You know, like they know that I'm gay and I'm not afraid to admit that I have sex with men, but like I can't say that I'm a homosexual because like whatever fucked up thing in his head, he's like, they're lesser than, like yeah, they're not exactly. the right. Well, he says like they they couldn't fucking pass any like equality bill. Like they can't do anything. Like He's like, I'm powerful. Therefore, I'm not gay. Mm -hmm. That's it. Gay well, men have no clout 
which is just the parallels with that McCarthyism, like to point a finger at someone and say, prove it, prove you're not a witch. Exactly. You know, if we if we sink you and you drown, then you're human. And if you don't drown, then you're a witch and we have to kill you. It's the same. It's, you know, I don't want to use the word witch hunt because Donald Trump fucking blew that shit up. But it's, you know, basically the same thing. Sorry, uh, I don't want to talk too much, but did you know Donald Trump was very closely friends with Roy Cohn. He was a mentor. Yeah. Roy Cohn was so a mentor. I literally just almost like vomited in my mouth. <laughs> so it's like this play was written 25 years ago, but yeah. is still to this day like a relatable fucking asshole who has still like contributed to how we are fucking fucked up in our present day. It's a circle, you guys. Yeah. It's just one big circle. Yeah. I was trying to say like, uh, I've, <laughs> for whatever reason, I was thinking about this like 10 minutes ago, but I didn't, I, there's so much to talk about. But uh, when Donald Trump was pre- elected president, which is, I think, coincidentally, like the day he started serving uh, as president was like the day they started rehearsing for the national theater play. <laughs> oh my um, God. Because like they rehearsed for like a year or something. Anyway, uh, when Donald Trump was president, I remember like seeing something on Twitter talking about how like, he was really good friends with Roy Cohn. And then it just made me like dive back into Angels in America. And uh, let's talk about Roy Cohn. So um, I think what may be a huge, had a huge impact on Tony Kushner. Are you guys familiar with the AIDS quilt? No. I wasn't familiar before reading this book or maybe I had forgotten, but I think it was uh, just some like activism. I think it's kind of centered around San Francisco. I think it came... As a result, after uh, Harvey Milk's death, mm. a lot of activists getting together and realizing that uh, a lot of their friends were dying of AIDS, and they decided to start sort of like a m- memoriam or a memorial, or asking everyone like, if you knew someone who died from AIDS, can you like write on a piece of paper, like a little card, and we'll put them all together. Mm. And they did that, and they were like, "Huh, it's kind of funny. It kind of looks like a quilt." And mm. so they decided we're going to actually make uh, a quilt. And the AIDS quilt, I think you can, hold on, I actually have the website pulled up. It's still a thing today. You can see it at AIDSmemorial.org. There's an inter- interactive AIDS quilt. So this is kind of like the what the quilt would look like. You can kind of wow. see. But I mean, just to kind of put it in context, if you zoom all the way out. Holy and shit. I'm sure there's like way more people who died of AIDS than what is represented on the quilt. I'll show Lizzie. But like, holy shit, this is like zooming into like one. Oh, my God. And this is like the community in San Francisco as well. This is not even like nationwide. Yeah. I mean, I I think they might have expanded it. But yeah, at the time it was just like. um, Just that community. Right. And then actually I want, if you can, Lizzie, would you type in Roy Cohn? Oh, because you can find it by person? Mm-hmm. No fucking way. Lee. And what's crazy, I mean, I'm sure there's actually more than two, but there's there's more than one Roy Cohn on the AIDS quilt. <gasps> um, but there is one, the, the Roy Cohn, uh, very early on in the AIDS quilt, he was probably one of the first people, there is a, there is a little patch for Roy Cohn. <gasps> I think it's so crazy. So you look, Bully, you see, coward, victim is Roy what it Cohn, says. Bully, coward, victim. Whoa. And, uh, Tony, when he saw that, he said, if I can write something half as dialectical as that, it'll be a great character. That's Um, basically his arc in the play, though. mm -hmm. And those are like the beats he gets. Because and going back to the Roy Cohn death scene that we mentioned earlier, how he dies is. Yeah. It's like. I found it comedic, but I also found it tragic and insane. And I cried during this scene, which I never thought I'd cry f- 
fucking Roy Cohn. But in this scene, he's lying in a hospital bed at the end of his life. He is ill. He is in pain. He is suffering. And the ghost of Ethel is sitting in the room with him. And she basically is like, I'm here to watch you suffer. Like, you watched me suffer and you brought me to the end. I'm here to watch your end. And Roy goes into this, like, fit, like Sam was saying earlier, this fit of, like, uh, hallucination where he's, like, crying out and he he's crying out to Ethel, Mom, is that you? Ma? Like, oh, I haven't seen you in forever. Ma, I'm scared. I'm, I'm terrified. I'm in pain. Sing me a song, Ma. And you see Ethel melt from hatred to sympathy and sing this beautiful song to him, a song of comfort. And at the end of the song... Roy Cohn passes away. Or you think he passes away because he actually comes back and is like, it's, it's a, I, didn't ah, see, I didn't see this in the National Theater, but I want it. That's like the next scene. I want to watch that. It's insane because Nathan Lane, I think, is such a, a stellar comedian. And he, I can see why Tony Kushner wanted him for this scene in particular because he pops up and is like, ha ha, Ethel, I got you. Like, <laughs> fuck you. I got one last rag over you. He's like, I just wanted to see Ethel Rosenberg sing. Sing, and exactly. You, did. you and, sang for me. And then he actually fucking dies, oh like right in front of them. But I was like, at the very end, like, you do get the opportunity to see the beat of him as a victim. If we're looking back to the quilt, bully, mm -hmm. coward victim, he, as. Anyone on this AIDS quilt is a victim of AIDS, and he also was a fucked up man, a bully and a coward, mm -hmm. certainly, but that beat was just so... I, I guess I finally saw the payoff of the Roy Cohn character, because after watching part one, Sam and I were kind of chatting, and I remember you saying, like, if I could kind of trim a little bit from this play, I would trim Roy Cohn. Mm -hmm. And to me, like, the beat of him... His death really, like, tied it all together. And I was like, ah, I can see why the inclusion of this character is there. Such a heinous, awful character. Yeah, no, absolutely. That payoff has got to be incredible. I haven't seen the second part, but now I'm going to go watch it. <laughs> the second part is incredible. I forgot to mention the subtitle of Angels in America, A Gay Fantasia on National Themes. And it is super political. I think it is super important to focus on the politics of the play um, and Roy Cohn is kind of a huge entryway into politics in this play or like uh, how they can start talking about that. Is Tony Kushner gay? Yes. Um, he's actually married to journalist Mark Harris, I think, who is Mike Nichols' biographer, who's the director of the HBO miniseries. Sorry, oh, I wow. sound like a Wikipedia article. Just, like, <laughs> Wait, clicking, like, Mike <laughs> Nichols, who directed HBO, what else did he do? Because that name he sounds did so familiar. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf was his <gasps> first film. That's one of my favorite plays ever. And he did a lot of theater and he's still, um, he's dead now, but he did it throughout his his uh, life and career. He, he did theater and film. He started in theater, uh, which makes him a great fit for the HBO miniseries. He did The Graduate. Wow. Mm -hmm. And I'm That's trying to think. I mean, uh, Kramer versus Kramer, I think. Oh my God. I love that movie. Yeah. <laughs> Such a good movie. Um, but He's yeah. like, I'm tackling every theme <laughs> available to American people. What pains the American people? I am talking about. <laughs> uh, but I did want to say one last thing about uh, a quote from this book about Roy Cohn. This is uh, from a critic from the New York Times, Wesley Morris. It would have been so easy to make a play about Roy Cohn, maybe even him having AIDS. But for a gay Jewish man to completely reappropriate Roy Cohn's story, to tell this larger story about the AIDS crisis in the 1980s, is really incredible. 
to have a gay man who is also a Jew wrestling with the legacies of shame and hypocrisy among his own people on his own terms is really powerful. And I think every person, you know, probably all the theater kids, people who enjoy theater, (laughs) but people who just interact with art can relate to this idea of a bully that is a coward that is a victim because every bully is a coward and also a victim. So, you know, Mm -hmm. I think... I like at first, as Lizzie was saying, I was like, I, maybe I could do without him in the first part, but it really fucking brings it home, seems mm-hmm. like, storytelling-wise. Yeah, and I do think that, uh, though you said Al Pacino plays him in the HBO series, I mean, great, gruff, insane role. <laughs> yeah. He does a great job. But to cast Nathan Lane, who is gay and intelligent and empathetic and an ally in this role, is also part of that, uh, what's the word they use, re... Reappropriation. Reappropriation of that character as like the thing that you hate also is now representing you. Yeah. So it's like a huge fuck you Mm -hmm. to the legacy of Roy Cohn. And there's like a, a, I don't want to spoil too much, but there's a great scene right after he dies where Belize brings Pryor into the room Hmm. uh, because. No, Lewis. Or or brings Lewis Lewis in the room? room. It's Lewis. So he brings Lewis into the room. This is in part two because um, Roy Cohn gets uh, these AZT pills, which is an experimental treatment, actually from Belize's recommendation. There's a lot of like, there's a really interesting relationship between Belize and Roy Cohn Mm -hmm. because they starts off with like Roy Cohn saying slurs at Belize and Belize like yelling back at him. But then they like have this interesting friendship and understanding and uh, Belize, I guess, feels some sorrow or some sort of respect or communality to Roy Cohn. So he brings Lewis in, who is a Jew, to say the mourner's Scottish for uh, Roy Cohn, which is funny because Lewis is like, I'm not even like really Jewish, like practicing, like Belize, you probably know more of the mourner's (laughs) Scottish than I do. But as he's saying it, Ethel Rosenberg appears (laughs) and she's like telling him what to say. Um, And so like line by line of the mourner's Scottish, which is a pretty long um, prayer. And then at the very end, like it's like whatever like Hebrew or Aramaic, and they repeat it. And then uh, Ethel Rosenberg's like Vayadim, whatever, blah, blah blah. And Lewis is like Vayadim, blah blah blah. And at the end, uh, Ethel's like, "You son of a bitch." And Lewis, <laughs> Lewis is like, "You son of a bitch." They like sign the prayer, "You son yeah. of a bitch." It's just, it's like this great modernization of just where the world was at. When this was being written. And I guess I'm so used to reading, and this is definitely on my taste in plays, but I'm so used to reading plays that are period pieces or else were written long, long ago. So they feel so unremoved from the world now. But the relativity and the humor of this play and how it's seven fucking hours long, but I (laughs) still felt connected to it every moment, even though it was written 25 years ago, really spoke to me and... That's why I think I love the 2018 production so much is because it the modernization of it at its time in the 90s is still relevant today. And like we were saying, like we're still feeling the heat of asshole Trump to this day and yeah. how that's tied to Roy Cohn. Like that legacy is still now. And it's just a, a work like this can feel immortal 
It reminds me of how the L word ran until Obama's uh, election as president because they were like, oh, well, we did it. The gay people are safe. And then they hung that hat up. And then Donald Trump was elected and they're like, let's start rehearsing Angels in America. (laughs) Well, I mean, that was one of the I remember the night Donald Trump was elected and like literally one of my gay friends like weeping in my arms about how horrible it was going to be and just like feeling so devastated but then maybe the following week with that same person having a conversation about how this was going to bring about so much art and so much music and movies and everything in revolt and I think we're still to this day like feeling the tidal wave ripple effects of yeah. What that fucked up four years was like, because we are still living in the aftermath of that, you know. Mm-hmm. I have a great quote from Tony Kushner that I'll save to the end, but it's kind of like looking back and looking forward, like you're saying, like what what we have to hope for in the future or what we do in these very dark times. But maybe we should talk about Mormons next. Mormons. <laughs> <laughs> Clickbait much. We all love to talk about Mormons. Clickbait, yeah, that's funny. Uh there's sorry, because there's like I mean, when you asked me like to try to describe the play, there's like a really funny flyer for the play before it was like even written. They're trying to <laughs> before they when they were trying to like get people to come to their theater company and watch the play. It's like Roy Cohn, AIDS, the ozone, the government, Mormons, and God has disappeared. <laughs> a stage reading in two parts: Angels in America, a new epic drama by Tony Kushner. Yeah, such clickbait. There's like so much going on, like way too much. But um, was start- Tony Kushner? Sorry to interrupt. Was Tony yes. Kushner like well known at this time, or was no, this no, one no. of his earliest? He had one other play called a bright, a brighter room called Day, or a bright room called Day, and then he got like a. Um, I think he just got like noticed by this producer or dramaturge or whatever you would call it. I don't know what that world, how they say it in that world, but um, this man, Oscar Eustace, I believe, who was attached to some theater in San Francisco, Mm. got like a grant to write a play. Ah, and that's how, right. I remember reading that it was commissioned. The play was commissioned by the San Francisco Theater Group. Okay. But yeah, so I mean, I'm sure there's like a quote somewhere in this book where it was like, and Tony had this crazy idea about a play about angels and politics and Mormons and Roy Cohn. It doesn't make (laughs) any sense. Um, But from Tony Kushner's uh, mouth, he said, uh, maybe this is maybe this is like an early experience in his life that sort of latched Mormonism into his head. Tony Kushner said, when I was a kid in Louisiana, I went to the summer program at McNeese State University, which is the university in Louisiana. And actually that program is probably the governor's program for gifted children. Did you ever, did you know about that growing up in Louisiana? It was in his hometown, Lake Charles. Kids came from all over the state. You lived there for six weeks. So like you stay there in the dorms at the university in Lake Charles. But he says, in the summer of my first year in college, so we should know about Tony Kushner. He was born in, I think, like Manhattan, but then pretty immediately his family, like his parents moved to Lake Charles. And hmm. then- The Manhattan of Louisiana. <laughs> that's, that's a pipeline. <laughs> and uh, so uh, he spent all of his youth all the way up to high school in Lake Charles, and then went to back to New York, I think like Columbia for college. But he says in the first summer of his college year, he applied for a job as a dorm counselor at the that program. My favorite student of all the kids, her name was Mary Fanning. 
Her father ran the local Boy Scout troop, and they were a Mormon family. She is a really incredibly warm, lovely person, and I adored her, and she adored me. At the end of her last year of the program, she gave me, as a parting gift, the Book of Mormon, with this very impassioned inscription. If you think this is false, then this must mean that I and millions of other fools are stumbling around in the darkness, or something devastating like that. (laughs) It was so daunting, and it took me like a year and a half to get around to starting to read it. And then I read it, and it's... Mark Twain famously called it chloroform in print. It's just terrible. It's a terrible (laughs) book. (laughs) But, you know, like he obviously has some repulsion to the Book of Mormon, but he has some sort of incredibly strong connection to this uh, young girl that he knew uh, as, you know, that that was his maybe introduction to Mormons, perhaps. And yeah, I don't know. Do you you guys know any Mormons or had you grown up with any Mormons? I, uh, down the block from where I grew up was a Church of the Latter-day Saints. I grew up in South Texas with a bunch of Catholic Mexicans. And this was the first church that I ever was around that wasn't a Catholic church. And I remember like using public, this is kind of weird, but like using public areas to like, you know, ride your bike or learn how to, you know, drive a car, parallel park, you know, like things you do as a teenager. And we never were allowed to use the Church of the Latter-day Saints. And it was the first time that I ever saw like a congregation of white people and realized they are nothing but white people. Like in this, especially in South Texas, you know, like in the community that I was raised from, like white people would come just for that church and then leave immediately. And the rest of like the Mexicans weren't really allowed to use the, the property that they own. So that was my only experience with Mormons, I think. Yeah, I have a friend who was raised in Mormonism, but who did not have a positive experience growing up in that way and so like clearly rejects it now but it definitely seems like just from my experience on the outside that it's it feels like an insular religion in a way that all religions are insular and trying to like bring people in it feels like mormonism is kind of exclusive in its own way but in you talking lee and reading those quotes about tony kushner like having this positive experience in his life with someone who was raised mormon um but feeling so conflicted about it. You can definitely see that in the Mormon characters because Mm -hmm. like Joe is on one side of the scale. You know, he's a closeted homosexual. He's basically mistreating his wife and gaslighting her and kind of just like fucks off at the end to be very unhappy. And he's kind of like Mormonism, I guess, in like a negative sense, whereas the mother, who's an older Mormon, his mother, who's an older Mormon character, is the one that ends up being next to Belize, who is Pryor's best friend, the one that shows up for Pryor more than anyone and who mm. actually like gives uses her knowledge of the Book of Mormon to give him guidance on how to literally fight an angel. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like you see this hero of a Mormon and this negative character mm-hmm. in the story. And I, I do think that's interesting and... And how, yeah, it's just the intersection of everything here from like queerness to politics and conservatism to 
like sex all intersect in these characters and and Lewis too in particular is so conflicted when he learns that his <laughs> lover is a Mormon. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not sure if it's Lewis or Pryor and you can maybe mm-hmm. it's the disillusionment of Mormonism that Tony Kushner has says at one point like oh yeah, Jesus stepped foot in the 13 colonies. Like, I'm so fucking sure. (laughs) Yeah, it was probably Lewis, yeah. Uh, Yeah, no, I was thinking about that character Hannah. She's played by Meryl Streep in the HBO series. Oh my God, she's played by Meryl Streep? Mm -hmm. The Streep. Oh, who does a great job. She's good, yeah. And that's like, I was thinking about that character. Like, so in this book, the oral history, the world only spins forward. There are interludes where they just like, there's a whole chapter on like Lewis. There's like a whole chapter on like Hannah specifically is Hmm. what I'm thinking of where like they interview all the actors who played Hannah and just, you know, her character is maybe not as essential or not as uh, blown up as Roy Cohn or, or Pryor or something. But hearing the actors like who played her, and understanding like the journey and like the first scene that you meet her, I think is like a phone call. Mm-hmm, right. Yeah. Um, he comes out, Joe comes out to his mom. To his mom on the phone. And then like the actors are like the first scene that you see her, like she's already beginning to change. And like yeah. there's such an amazing like trajectory that this character goes on throughout the second play as well. As you already mentioned, like she sticks with Pryor the most perhaps. Yeah. It's like, you know, Uh, Maybe it's a stereotypical thing, but like my experience with Mormons is they're all like very nice people, but I guess the religion is confusing to me. But Hannah, I think maybe through Tony Kushner's eyes is like, uh, that is sort of the redeeming factors of just like a good person. Yeah, she's empathetic. And because there's this really, in the play that I watched, the National Theater play, there's this moment after... Pryor has collapsed in her presence. They literally just met. She has no idea who this person is. She just knows he's a gay man in peril. And she agrees to take him to the hospital. The next thing they're together, he's in the hospital bed having like these breathing fits where he just can't breathe. His lungs are failing him. And he lifts up his shirt and shows like all the lesions on his chest and how much pain he's in. And... I guess in his mind, Pryor's mind, he's expecting the Lewis reaction, which is to fucking sob and then run away and be a total Mm -hmm. spineless shit ass. I have to comfort (laughs) this person because I am sick. Right. But instead, this woman, she just like very gently like pulls his shirt over him, says, that's the most human thing I've ever seen. And just kind of like holds him for a second. There's this long beat where it's like he hasn't been held by anyone but Belize in months, you know. And it's like he just met this person who like whose, you know, indoctrinization teaches her that he shouldn't exist, like he shouldn't be doing what he's doing, but she's just accepted him. And it's kind of the turning point for Pryor and like empowers him again, like I mentioned earlier, to fight an angel with her behind, <laughs> with her in his corner. And it's a really great moment. Yeah. And it's kind of mentioned a little in here and just other texts that I've read about angels in America, it's like the only people who see the angel are Pryor and Hannah. Mm-hmm. Hannah sees the angel as well, which is like a very important thing to think right. about. Oh, true. Yeah. Because yeah. she believes in angels. Mm-hmm. Like he's like, I saw an angel and she's like, okay. <laughs> she's like, <laughs> and what do you tell you? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, well, there's a lot that I, I've taken from this oral history that I think is really interesting. And there's too much to talk about, but I would love to talk. I would, I'll I'll probably pull some quotes from here, but I also just want at this point to open it up and just to talk about the actual text. Like if you guys had any thoughts or questions about 
what is happening in the play, things you liked or whatever? I have questions. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, Excuse I me. Yes, my, I have my ticket. Um, yes. Uh, so I know you mentioned the days where they would run both at once, which sounds exhausting both for the audience member and the cast. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. I, Sorry. Yeah, there's like a lot of the cast in this book in interviews, they say like, you know, it's like a lot of work for us, but like, it's equally as hard. Like they're talking about like how like, I don't know why people would put themselves through that. <laughs> like it's a marathon for them too. So we're, and they almost talk about like, it's an interesting, like they're in it together and they yeah. feed off of each other. And mm -hmm. sometimes it's, uh, sorry to go off on a tangent, but when no, Perestroika was first um, revealed, I guess you could say, Millennium Approaches was finished first. And then uh, Perestroika was being written as they were performing Millennium Approaches, mm -hmm. the first part. And so when they would perform Perestroika, it would just be like uh, a staged reading where the actors would be like, there's this scene where uh, Lewis and Pryor fight about this. We can't, we don't have enough time to do it, but this is what happens. You know? <laughs> wow. And so I almost feel like those like double days is like, not maybe not necessarily that, but like almost where the actors are kind of just like working with the audience to be like, this yeah, is what's you get going it. on. Yeah. Right? <laughs> They're in a conflict, huh? Right. <laughs> that was my question. Like in these double days, are there I mean, you mentioned in passing when we were discussing doing this episode that I said, how could anyone possibly get through two parts of this? And you said, well, they didn't even finish the second part by the time the first part was on stage. I think you should probably watch the first part before <laughs> you watch the second part. But. Yeah, exactly. I think you'd be a little confused <laughs> just watching the second part. They're very different plays. He he outlines in uh, the playwright's notes for Perestroika how like Perestroika is like tonally different. It's technically a comedy but that it should be played like he has like in all caps, a cautionary note. Like you have to play this very serious. I've seen many productions where it fails. Like he's very protective of the text and he, as a writer does like has a vision for what it should be. And he understands like what it, what it was when he wrote it and he doesn't want it to be misinterpreted, I guess. Is it kind of like a, a movie in the sense where you watch one and you wait several years for the other? So the timeline of the plays, because I'm just a nerd and I had to wiki it. So in 1991 is when Millennium Approaches, the first part, premiered in San Francisco through... It premiered the... two days before the day that I was born. <gasps> wow. You're like a amalgamation of <laughs> yeah. this work. And I'm just like trying to connect it to myself. <laughs> That's why gay people lovely. <laughs> <laughs> we just love them. Uh, so this premiered in 1991, uh, and it wasn't long before the second part was released. The both parts were premiered together in London in 1993. So the mm -hmm. first part's running in 1991 while Kushner is like scribbling away on part two. So it was a very short span before the two were then presented together. And it appears that the works are always presented together, though separated into different show times. Mm. I mean, they have to be for the audience. I mm. mean, for the audience and the crew and the cast to fucking pee and eat. <laughs> but there are days where both are presented, you know, maybe one at noon and another at seven. Uh. Um or on separate days, you know, one on Monday, one on Tuesday. So there's there's cases of both in the theatrical runs I saw, at least. And they are judged in terms of, like, critical acclaim and in awards as separate works. Hmm. Both have won Tonys. Like, part one won a Tony for best play. Part two also won a Tony for best play. I see. So they can share the same company in the same stage, but they are regarded as different pieces of work. Exactly. Right. That's so cool. And then I did read about that National Theater um, 
production of it, it had sold out before like it even opened. So wow. for whatever reason, like there was a quotient of people who saw Perestroika first because that's just the only ticket that they could get. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so, yeah. Like, yeah, that was, I don't remember what they said The payoff that, wouldn't but. be like, you wouldn't feel the payoff at all. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, it's just like starts. Yeah. I would um, die to see this live. Now that I know it exists, I'm I'm like, next time they regenerate it, I'm so fucking there. I don't care who's doing it. Yeah, what's crazy is like I knew about this and I was alive, I, but I guess like I had never been to New York two at days. that time. You were alive for two days. <laughs> no, I, <laughs> no, I meant like uh, when the when the uh, when it came to Broadway in America. So it came a year after the National Theater Company did it. Yeah, the National Theater reawoke it twenty fours twenty four years after its first premiered, so in twenty seventeen, and it mm-hmm. was such a hit in the UK National Theater that Broadway took over the run, which is apparently a thing that happens in theater, and <laughs> from there. It was, I mean, it won Tonys all over the place. Nathan Lane and Andrew Garfield Mm -hmm. won Tonys. The person who played the angel and the person who played Harper both were nominated for a Tony and it received like best uh, revival. And Bob the Drag Queen, uh, winner of season eight of RuPaul's Drag Race, played Belize. Oh, wow. In a San Francisco production. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. And another fun. Another fun casting fun fact I found, whenever both parts were premiered together for the first time in 1993 in London, Daniel Craig was cast as Joe, the Mormon husband Wait, character. I didn't even know that. Wow. Yeah, I saw that He's and not I was in like, this book Ooh. at all. That's awesome. Because I've heard awesome. his accent and I don't know if I like it. <laughs> but I've also heard Daniel Craig is gay or bi. Mm. So here's yet more evidence <laughs> to add to that stack. Yeah. Rachel Wise and Daniel Craig. And I, I, forgot, forgot. I, okay, another question. Are we still in the question taking time? This is question time, question block. Okay, so Lizzie and I were watching the National Theater version, and it seemed very evident that all of these characters were playing the secondary minor characters. Great and I question. wonder if, like, what the intention was behind that, because it could almost seem confusing. When we were, after we finished watching part one, we were like, huh, like, is it just random that like the mom also plays the nurse, also plays the rabbi, or is it specific? And in the text, it says, this person who is the mother also plays these characters, like Mm -hmm. to the name. It's like, this person is also these three people as well. So it's intentional. Great question. I, uh, this is a common thing in theater called doubling, where uh, I think it's more of an economical thing. So you want to make it as easy as possible, theoretically, for people to perform it, ideally. And Angels in America has a crazy, I mean, I'm just getting sidetracked, but I just wanted to mention, like, this has been, like, performed all over the world and translated in so many different languages. I just, I can't shout it out enough. But um, so originally when I read the plays, and according to the playwright's notes, like, it's a very pared down production, at least in his vision, Tony Kushner. Mm -hmm. Um, so I figured, yeah, I mean, like the doubling, like you just got to like cut costs three cans. I thought he wrote it in such a way to where like one character's missing for a couple scenes so they can play Right, this the mother or mm-hmm. the like, I need, nurse, yeah. And I need to structure it this way so that like this actor can, so it makes sense for doubling. But there's an amazing uh, quote in this book about the doubling. Someone has an interesting theory that I, I believe today. Let's see. It was Michael Crass, if 
the costume designer of the national tour in 1994-95. So the person who has to get all the costumes for all the characters. Oh, God. The most doubling. overworked person on the set. <laughs> so he should have a good, or yeah, he should have a good understanding of the doubling. But this is what he said. Can I tell you something we discovered? I'm reading this play. I'm trying to lay this fucker out, and it's torture. <laughs> There's so many quick changes, wig changes, female to male changes. Why is it so complicated? Could the doubling be different? But by way of assignment of actor to role, it's all purposeful because there is no straight male delivering authority. It is, in fact, very conscious, I think, that even the rabbi, even the doctor, even Martin, even the old Bolshevik, they're played by women. It's deeply subversive. Oh. Yeah. Okay. I'm obsessed. <laughs> that is like, that's, I feel like my heart is like eating a bowl of warm soup. Okay. That's so <laughs> incredible because Lizzie and I were watching and we we're like, if it's a sense, if it's based in like economy of actors time, because they have to do eight hours, they have to rehearse for years. Like it makes sense to put people where there are gaps in the roles because there was a point where. Pryor is playing Lewis's, like Lewis goes cruising in the park mm -hmm. and the person who fucks oh. him is Pryor. And I was like, thematically, this is <laughs> very confusing. Oh right. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, there, there must be an intention behind it. But uh, yeah, that's like, that's so good to know because we were trying to figure out yeah. what the point was there. And there may be an intention. I think there's another quote. I didn't mark it down, but someone was asking Kushner, like, why am I doing this? Like, what's the reasoning? And he was just like... Just have fun with it. Like, I'm sure he has his own ideas, but he's not going to tell you. Just another little layer of genius. It's just such a nice little thing. There's no authoritarian white straight man to come in and say, you have to do this, 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 and this. And and for the my question for the HBO miniseries, was Meryl Streep in drag? She's in drag as the rabbi in nice. the very beginning. But the doctor, who I think is played by the same actor as Hannah yeah. in the... In the HBO series, it's a man. Oh, interesting. So the doctor oh. of Roy Cohn. So sometimes they honor yeah. the... Because I know the Emma Thompson character plays the nurse. Yes. As well as the angel, which is how it is in the theatrical version mm -hmm. as well. And yeah, Meryl Streep is like wearing this crazy like beard as the rabbi. Um, I'm trying to think of some other interesting doubles. But they do the doubling in the uh, HBO series as well. But I, I think we should quickly talk about since this is such a, a historic work and many actors have been attached. And as I said already, like to me, the HBO series is what I envision in my head. And I've already mentioned Roy Cohn is played by Al Pacino. Meryl Streep plays Hannah, Joe's mother. And for me, like Joe is quintessentially um, Patrick Wilson. That's who plays Joe in the HBO miniseries. Uh, that is to me the quintessential Joe. I think they, I think with the HBO series, they got, if not um, excellent, just like creatively cast, like quintessentially, just like they figured out who would be perfect for the role, just in the mind's eye. In the National Theater play, he's definitely like a. Uh, Perhaps demonized is not the right word, but just like kind of negatively viewed. He's kind of stupid, foolish, and like naive, selfish. Sure. And that's definitely the character of Joe. Like that's definitely part of the character. But something that Patrick Wilson brings is like this innocence and kindness. He's a great Joe. I'll always think of Mary Louise Parker as Harper, his wife. Oh, she's that's like yeah. played by Mary Louise Parker. Yeah. Wow. She's great. She, she has like, I mean, it's just Mary Louise Parker. She has this certain like tone in her voice. But I feel like anytime I 
hear another actor play Harper, I'm hearing Mary Louise Parker's portrayal, but maybe she cribbed it from someone else. I don't know. <laughs> uh, Emma Thompson is the angel. And then for, oh, Jeffrey Wright plays Belize. Do you know Jeffrey Wright? Mm-mm. You'll recognize him. Oh, wow. Him. Um, oh, yeah. He's, he's in, in Hunger Games. Yeah. <laughs> he's like the nerd yeah. in the second Hunger Games. But so, he's wonderful. So I don't know if this is how he like got his start, but um, he definitely got early acclaim in his career because he played Belize on Broadway. Ah. And oh, I have a really good quote from him. Uh, he won a Tony on Broadway for playing Belize when they were casting the HBO series, the Mike Nichols series. Uh, Jeffrey Wright said, I heard whispers about the movie. My thought was that no one was going to play Belize other than me. And if they tried to bring that into being, some sets might mysteriously burn to the ground. <laughs> I love that. You you manifest your destiny. It's another level of manifesting. Yeah, yeah it's hands-on manifesting. It, <laughs> shit will burn to the ground. He did a wonderful job. I mean, I yeah. I remember his scene in the episode that I watched. He he's a much kinder, more gentle version than I think mm. the theatrical production is a little bit mm-hmm. more sharp, which I loved. I mean, the character of Belize in the theatrical version is just, I want to have that person in my life. <laughs> There's a very interesting, sorry, just that we're talking about actors and theater versus the film, like the TV miniseries. The actor that played Lewis, I think his name is Ben Shankman. He also played Lewis, I think he played Lewis in like a Juilliard productions, like the college, mm-hmm. you know, he did it in college. And um, he was trying to reconcile like the challenges of, he played this character on stage and it's going to be very different on film. And this is what he said. I had this sort of premonition that some of the stuff that helped redeem Lewis on stage wouldn't work in the movie. So Lewis is a very detestable character. He's he the sucks. one who leaves, he leaves Pryor while Pryor is dying of AIDS. I think two things redeem characters on stage that don't necessarily redeem them in the movies. One is funny lines, jokes, and the other is being the mouthpiece for the politics. The fact that this guy is rattling on and saying these witty put-downs of Ronald Reagan and stuff, that would bring the house down in the theater. Mm. But in the movie, it just made him a guy who very clearly had, you know, kind of channeled all his self-loathing into his politics. Mm-hmm. And to me, like watching the HBO series and then watching the National Theater production, I was struck by the laughter breaks, which Mm -hmm. is definitely a thing, uh, welcome in the play. But as I was saying, like it felt to me that the HBO series is like way more over serious. Mm -hmm. But I think reading that quote from Ben Shankman, um, that was like definitely what they were struggling with, like working in film. It's like you have to play these things out Emotionally more in the close-up, more like revealing yourself. Translating the brevity to the screen where everything is incredibly intentional loses some of that. And she was from New Jersey. But yeah. I'm, you know. And there's no feedback element on film either. Like mm-hmm. in theater, there's hundreds of people in the room with you potentially like living and breathing and giving you responses. And that can probably be detrimental if like no one's fucking laughing. Mm-hmm. But it can elevate a performance if people are receptive to what you're saying. As theater kids, we all did a performance of one play and then opening night, you're like, they're laughing at this beat. Yeah. I guess we're holding for that. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Or like, holy shit, they did not like the performance tonight. This was just a sour night. Let's roll through that beat (laughs) real quick. (laughs) 
quickly, I just want to get through a couple more of the famous actors that played in uh, Angels in America. Adam Driver played Lewis at the Signature Theater in New York in 2010. Here's a quote from Adam Driver uh, concerning Angels in America. I think it's the greatest play ever written. (laughs) Close this book. (laughs) Close this book. Adam Driver as Lewis? He's so hard to hate, but he he loves Lewis. I kind of hate Adam Driver. He's kind of serpentine in a way. Like he's. Yeah. I I guess the like Adam Driver who played Adam in Girls is like that's Lewis. (laughs) That Adam, yes. Twenty ten Adam Driver was kind of maybe that was the era. And then I promised you I have some fun quotes from Andrew Garfield. I'll try to get at least. Okay, I've been on the edge of my seat for you to mention (laughs) Andrew Garfield's name. Andrew Garfield in this national theater production. Up until I saw that TikTok that drove me really directly to that particular performance and getting the streaming service so I could watch the play. Yeah, I'm glad you did. (laughs) I kind of considered him a little bit of a cheesy actor. (laughs) I saw Never Let Me Go, which is wonderful, but his performance is quite understated. I saw Spider-Man, which is fine. But then watching his performance as Prior Walter in this production, which is probably the most difficult role I've ever seen anyone perform this eight hour strenuous physical and emotional masterpiece i was like wait andrew garfield's this good of an actor like how did i have no fucking clue and also that he himself is he's admittedly heterosexual though he says he's open to any did you get you guys know know about the controversy here or (gasps) wait what uh, I mean, I don't how know. he wants to kiss Jesse Eisenberg. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if this was actually a big deal, but they did talk about it a little bit in this book. Um, I guess someone probably asked him about his sexuality, mm-hmm. but he said this stirred a lot of backlash in uh, online community. He said that he is a gay man right now, just without the physical act. <laughs> people were screaming at him that, you know, it's like appropriating the gay culture or whatever. I think Tony Kushner actually, um, sorry, I'll read this in defense. Tony Kushner said, I can't say enough about how much I admire what Andrew has done. He's a straight guy and he just dug so deeply into the spirit of this 1980s queen that you, it feels so absolutely authentically gay to me. And I think that that's extraordinary. And I did read that Andrew Garfield studied with a lot of drag queens and like he did a lot of drag contests. Not only Andrew Garfield, but the actor that played Belize in the National Theater production. It just seemed to me that Andrew Garfield was during this play trying to like live his life as a gay man. And um, I don't know if that's what do you what do you guys think about that comment? I I, I am a gay man just without the uh, physical act. I couldn't give less of a shit. Fucking work, bitch. I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of people are quick to take offense uh, in situations like this. I think that was a great performance. And what fucking harm does it do? Fucking Daniel J. Lewis is sleeping outside for fucking There Will Be Blood. He's like, call me Lincoln, actually. exactly. Don't refer to me. Don't text me on my cell phone, you know? So if Andrew Garfield wants to regard himself as a gay man, me as a gay person really doesn't give a fuck. I think if the performance fell flat, Mm -hmm. but I've actually seen like there's some for some reason on the Internet, a short clip of Andrew Scott, who is a gay actor um, performing the scene where he um, tells Lewis he has AIDS 
on YouTube. I like found this clip and I don't think he was ever in a full production. Maybe it was just like an acting class or something. And I didn't feel as much with Andrew Scott, an actor I love who's actually gay playing prior as I did the moment Andrew Garfield was on stage. And I'm not a gay man, so, you know, but I am a person with a heart and a person who knows at least some of the history. And I can see how every detail of his body, his voice, his emotionality feels gay to me. Like it feels accurate. Like I think if that performance fell flat, I would be like, Ooh, maybe yeah. they should have considered someone else. <laughs> yeah. But if he took the time to immerse himself in the community and try to meet people and talk with them and really study the work and put in the work to commit his life to this play for years, that's the most a fucking ally can do. You know what I mean? He's doing two days. Like, what do they call them? Two a days? <laughs> or two a day. He's doing double days doing this shit. Like, for I like mean, a year. It's, yeah, I, I take absolutely no offense. I think, you know, I have no problem with gay people playing straight or straight people playing gay. And if he's at the point where he's so in the sauce that he's like, I'm a gay man, <laughs> fucking work, bitch, because the performance was amazing. There's also like so much so much evidence on the internet that he is probably a little gay. <laughs> well, well, let, me, let, me, let me read this quote. Cause there's a, there's another quote that I don't have in this book that I read, but I'll, first I'll read the quote in the book and then a second, a second one from my memory. Um, so Garfield says, one of my concerns is in my reality and my life, I, as far as I know, am a heterosexual male in a heterosexual male's body. And I'm not confused about that right now. That was a big, big concern, that tricky balance as a heterosexual male to attempt to portray that and live that and offer that in a way that's totally authentic, totally honest, and not shy. Those were the main choppy waters for me. And I knew deep down it was going to be fine, but just above that deep down was a fucking layer of terror. Mm -hmm. And then there's an interview that I read, um, not in this book, but he says like, Basically, I'm sure the interviewer asked, like, are you gay or like, what's your relationship to gay culture and stuff? And he he said uh, something to the effect of like what he's saying here, like, I'm not gay. I'm a heterosexual male now, but maybe in the future, like my life is going to have this crazy shift and it's going to be a beautiful, devastating moment in my life and I'm going to love it. But right now I'm just loving being this right now. And I think when he's when he was saying being this right now, he's like referring to being himself, but also like being this role. I do believe that he tried uh, very hard to like understand what it would be to be prior. You know, like I think he really tried to live that role in whatever way he could. I mean, I love the idea that like it's not <laughs> for a straight man to have enough empathy that it's not that hard to realize that you can love someone of your same sex. Like, I think <laughs> Heath Ledger took a very similar attitude when filming Brokeback Mountain in that he's like, I'm straight, but, like, I I can see how you can love a man. Like, I can yeah. feel that empathy. Like, it's not that hard for me because I don't have the hang-ups. Mm -hmm. So if someone doesn't have the social hang-ups that say, like, oh, wouldn't that feel so weird? Wouldn't it be, like, rock your world to pieces and make you upset or whatever? It's like, no, like, I can – how could you not love this person? Like, yeah. I can definitely see falling in love with this person. But also as an actor, it's not my job to fall in love with them. It's to play someone who's falling in love with them. Exactly. It's It's so beautiful to say – as an individual, I've embodied this character, which has opened me up to the possibility that if my soulmate walked in, regardless of how they present, 
I'm not going to say no, they're my partner. I think that's a beautiful thing. And, you know, we have other actors who play gay who say things that might sound a little appropriative or might sound like they haven't come to terms with the source material or really align themselves in that way. And that's uh, that's totally different. You know, you know it when you see it, when it feels abrasive and mm-hmm. this does not. And I just want to share one more quote from Andrew Garfield. Well, I'll show uh, Sam. This is Tony Kushner in probably 2017 with Andrew Garfield. So What's that's it that's like? what it looks like. Yeah, oh, you haven't seen the picture? Oh, cutie. Anyway, the quote from Andrew Garfield. Let me read. I had, okay, so this is about Andrew Garfield's relationship to Angels in America before he was uh, cast. I had seen Mike Nichols' HBO two-parter when I was studying in drama school. It was one of those things that was just on loop, on repeat, in our shared actor house. There were a few <laughs> DVDs we would watch over and over, and that was one. There's four of them. I'm going to give you guys three and see if you can get the fourth. One was <laughs> Angels in America HBO, two discs, apparently. Um, the other was Uta Hagen's acting class. <laughs> Eddie Murphy Delirious was the third. No. And then the fourth one, uh, an easy hand. We talked about it already today. Birdcage. <laughs> I'll tell you and then you'll get it. David Bowie. Labyrinth? Yeah. <laughs> Labyrinth. Let's go, bitch. He's a bisexual. That's like my number one most favorite movie that's ever existed in the entire world. Okay, future yeah. Future episode? This future episode? Future episode. <laughs> this man is definitely, could possibly be gay. Yeah. Oh, no, okay, I yeah. is not saying I'm open to being in a relationship of someone with any gender fucking queer. Like, <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. a whole, I mean, yeah. this is this is my cross to bear, but like the whole thing about bisexuality is that like if you're in a hetero-presenting relationship, does your bisexuality just fucking go away? No, it does not. If you've never had a relationship with someone of the same sex or another, uh, you know, does that make you less bisexual than before? I say no, uh, but some people might question your queerness. And again, it's up to the person and how they feel like identifying. And, you know, it's only a matter of time before Andy G just sees the perfect person for him and is like, oh, let's let's try this out. And I'm not saying if you love Labyrinth, you're gay, but I'm saying the likelihood is higher. <laughs> Labyrinth coming Either you, to an episode soon. you love puppets or you're kind of gay. That's a demographic for Labyrinth. <laughs> oh, my God. I have some closing remarks I'd like to put. Uh, to finish, I didn't want to end the conversation if you guys have anything else to say, but I think we're ready to uh, to close it out. I just would like to quickly give context about the name Angels in America, oh where, where it came from. Thank you. I'm obsessed with the I title. I, I guess I should quickly say, like, if, uh, if any of this is interesting to you, I'm totally cribbing a lot from this book, The World Only Spins Forward by Isaac Butler and Dan Coes. It's super interesting. I haven't even read all of it, so I'm sure there's a lot more that's uh, even better. But if you're interested in Angels in America, please, the easiest thing would probably be to get an HBO Max subscription, watch (laughs) the miniseries. Obviously read the plays, but the miniseries is very accessible and uh, very easy to digest, and it's just an amazing piece of work. And the National Theater version, you can rent. It's very good. You can actually just rent the one oh. uh, play through their streaming service, National Theater at Home, or get the mm. monthly subscription. Just saying. It's, it was incredible. I recommend kid, oh watching it with another theater kid and losing your fucking gourd over it. <laughs> All right. So Tony Kushner says this about the um, inception of Angels in America. Around November 1985, the first person that I knew personally died of AIDS. A dancer that I had a huge crush on, a very sweet man, and very beautiful. 
I got uh, an NEA, National Endowment of the Arts, directing fellowship at the Repertory Theater in St. Louis. And right before I left New York, I heard through the grapevine that he had gotten sick, and then in November he died. And I had this dream, Bill dying. I, I don't know if he was actually dying, but he was in his pajamas and sick on his bed, and the ceiling collapsed, and this angel comes into the room. And then I wrote a poem. I'm not a poet, but I wrote this thing. It was many pages long. After I finished it, I put it away. No one will ever see it. Its title was Angels in America. Oh, Lee, I just got goosebumps. My heart physically hurts. Tony Kushner has a way with words, man. He's I mean, a this, fucking a good, prophet. It's a good story, but just reading it is like, it's a good text too. Like he knows how to write and I guess knows how to speak. That was just an interview, but this is how I'll close it out. So uh, it's kind of bookending in a way. I don't know who was interviewing him, but the interviewer asked um, Tony to think back to that November 1985 and writing that poem and the dream with Bill and the angel. And the interviewer says, what would you tell that 29-year-old guy about the way the world was going to change? And uh, Tony, Tony says, "It's a, what a tough time to ask that question. This was in 2017, so Donald Trump presidency is a mm. big uh, dark cloud over this. Well, you know, uh, what would I have wanted him to know or what would I tell him? And the interviewer says, like, what, what would you tell him right now? Kushner takes a long pause and says, I don't think that I would talk to him. I think it's better that we don't know the future. The person that I was at 29 very deeply believed that there would be great progress. Working on all this stuff right after Reagan had been reelected, it felt very dark. I'm glad that I didn't know back then that at 60, I'd be looking at some of the same fucking fights that I was looking at at 29. Mm. Nothing, no right, is permanent. These are dark, very dark days, but I believe in the resiliency of our democracy, and I think we are going to overcome this motherfucker and all his hateful minions and will survive. <laughs> so does that answer your question? Hell yeah, dude. So yeah, I mean, it's a very poised answer, like, you know, very hopeful, but also recognizing how fucked we are in 2017 with Donald <laughs> Trump as the president. I mean, that's the exact ending of the play, you know, like prior goes to heaven, sees that heaven is also in this apocalyptic state and chooses to come back to earth to suffer, to probably die soon, if not eventually. Mm -hmm. And the final scene of the film, he like directly addresses the audience and, and gives his message of hope. And, you know, maybe that's why 25 years later, it still hits so hard is because we still need that hope because shit still sucks politically, environmentally, socially, it still sucks. And we still need to be like, let's look back at the future, but also remember where we are and where we have to go forward. Sorry, I have one last thing to relate onto that. But the ending of the play, uh, obviously this play has survived from the 80s and then when it blew up in the 90s and uh, spread across the globe and has been revived in 2017, uh, 2018 on Broadway. Um, people were asking like, you know, why are we redoing this? Why, what has, has this evolved, you know? And the ending of the play, uh, someone in this book talks about how when the play originally like was shown in front of an audience, it was like a call to action. Like we are gay people, we're part of the world. We need to make that, we need to bring that into existence. And then by the time they made the HBO series, like that was uh, a statement of fact. Like mm -hmm. whenever prior 
uh, yeah, it's Pryor who's giving that ending monologue and saying like, we are part of the, we're citizens of the world. And then just this one quote from, um, I think it's one of the original Harper's, uh, it's 1992. So Harper from back in the day, the actress who played her, Cynthia Mace. People wanted to see it when we did it because it was long and controversial. Now people want to see it because it's long and it's magical and it's true. Mm. It will never lose its impact because we haven't learned the lessons of it. Our ability to change is still challenged every day. I mean, that's a big part of it. Like change is a big part of the play, but um, yeah. Oof. So good. Damn, Lee, <laughs> you really came in here and like switched it up. I really appreciate you picking this play because like I said before, I might've, you know, never picked it up if you hadn't. Gosh. I'm, gl- I'm glad I did. Cause this is, this play has obviously meant a lot to me. And then revisiting for this podcast, you know, I can't say this whole past month has been this, but like, this has been a lot of my life in April. I was researching this a lot and it feels amazing and incredibly inspiring to be reading about this. And, uh, yeah, I'm really thankful to be talking about it on this podcast. You did such a great job. I mean, this is such a thick work. It's hours and hours and hours <laughs> and pages and pages. But I feel like hopefully this just like scratches the interest of someone listening to this to pursue watching the series or the or the play themselves if they haven't seen one or the other. Because it's just funny how the more specific a work is, the more relatable it is, even mm-hmm. over decades, you know, and and you know, who knows, 25 years from now when we're old and bitter and tired of fighting political battles, this <laughs> will have a third resurgence and we'll, you know, get another layer of hope from it. I just think it's so funny that for your birthday, you have <laughs> given me my new hyperfixation <laughs> and I have given you nothing yet. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Gotta get you a cake. <laughs> yeah. Do we, wait, should we like score it? Oh, oh shit. Yeah. Okay, yeah. S- Lee, can you... Can you tell us about the subtextual score? Do you know how the score yeah, works? I think I can figure this out. Yeah, I almost wonder if I should turn my mic on whenever you get to this part because it's so difficult for you guys to say. It's hard. He's it's like, hard. fine, do I have to do it? <laughs> yeah. Well, let's see if I actually can do it because I may fuck up right now. So we judge uh, the movie on how gay is it and how good is it on a score from one to 10. And then we'll divide that, I guess, by three mm-hmm. at this point. So 60. But the idea is... Um, it's going to be good and it's going to be gay. How much of it will it be? And then we, you know, a movie could be gay. I'm going to like give a long drawn out explanation. A movie could be very gay, but not very good, but it could Yeah, the have Venn like diagram a, is constantly fluctuating. Yeah. But that's the beauty of the subtextual score. It's not about how good a movie is. It's not about how gay a movie is. It's about this Venn diagram. Yeah, that's the middle bit. You better preach, the Lee. juicy middle of the gay cinnamon roll. You know, you want that middle bite. Okay, so how gay is it, Lee? How gay is it? Um, I w- I would like to request that I do not, as a as a heterosexual male, as Andrew Garfield would say, uh, you guys go first on the gay. Ten. There's ten. gay sex. Ten, ten, okay. ten. It's the I gayest mean, thing ever. Lewis has sex with that guy. In the park? In There's, the park. They talk about that, how like... Every man in the play is gay. Yeah, it's a ten. I, yeah, I mean, I could give it a ten. I would love to give it a ten. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, no. We empower you <laughs> Give it. <laughs> Lee, you can give it a 10. No, yeah. I just wanted to comment that, uh, yeah, it was kind of subversive at the time, this play, because it was in the 80s, obviously in the AIDS era. But um, yeah, that was, 
I don't know if that had necessarily been shown on stage before. Yeah. I think there were a couple of plays that they mentioned at the time that came before Angels in America that talked about AIDS, but it was very uh, graphic in its sexual nature, also in its depiction of AIDS, like with blood and stuff. Lesions. Yeah. yeah, it was accurate. Oh, no, you know, it's like you get to face it, which yeah. to this day, like in the remembrance of AIDS stories, you still kind of get the glossy off screen version of what the experience is like. But like our protagonist is suffering. And then as far as how good it is, it's a tricky thing for me. So like the HBO miniseries, I could not give a 10 out of 10. And the National Theater production, I also could not give a 10 out of 10. But obviously, I'm incredibly biased with just this text and my infatuation for Tony Kushner. If I could give the whole thing, it would be a 10 out of 10. But I'm going to um, I'm going to taper it back because I don't want this to be at the top, you know. And I, I, I want to <laughs> evaluate it as a Venn diagram, as the play, as the HBO series, as the text that I'm so fond of. Um, so I'll try to give it an, I'll say an eight out of 10 uh, for how good it is, just all encompassing. Um, but I really believe if you're listening to this, read the play, see the play if you can. It's worth it. You're copying me. I was going to give it an eight out of 10 as well. <laughs> I was going to give it an eight too. I wow. think it's perfect. This gets a subtextual score of nine then. <gasps> ah! That's pretty fucking high. That's is that good for subtext? Very high. I mean, a 10 is the highest you can right. get. And that's reserved for Carol, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> it's the only one that will hold that spot. Let me see where it falls, because uh, okay. I think it might have broached our top 10. Yeah, let's see. Angels in America comes in right at number five in our top 10. Hell yeah. Sandwiched between Jennifer's Body and Happy Together. That's insane. Oh my God. Some of my yeah. favorite movies. Yeah. I guess it makes sense. Some I have to tell taste. you, <laughs> this work, like watching the theater play and then the HBO series, at least in part, it was, it's been in my head for days and days and days. Like I haven't wanted to watch anything else to wash it out. It's just, I want to keep consuming like BTS yeah. material and interviews and different versions and different formats of the play itself. So something that gets that fucking stuck in your yeah. hand, that little thorn, the like worm. it has to have something special. <laughs> the worm. Yeah. yeah. Do you, yeah, I've been, I've been trying not to consume too much media about this league because it's such a good piece of work. So thank you so much for bringing this to us for your birthday. Happy oh birthday. Yeah, thank happy birthday, guys. Lee. What a wonderful birthday gift. Yeah. I love it. Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to keep this content ad-free, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash subtextualpod. See you next week.